The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Leslie Alexander, is a medical herbalist and former research scientist. She's also a, mem- a professional member of the American Herbalist Guild and co-owner of Restoration Herbs. She's here today to talk about her new book, co-authored with Linda Straub-Bruce, called Dental Herbalism, Natural Therapies for the Mouth. Welcome to Health Watch, Leslie Alexander. Uh, thank you very much, David. It's a great pleasure to be talking with you. So tell us how, as an herbalist, you decided to write a book that was focused on uh, herbs for oral health and and what you call dental herbalism. Um, You might be surprised to hear you're not the first person to ask that question. (laughs) Uh, I came to Herbs for the Mouth because I really saw that there was a great need to address not only oral care, but systemic care. And the mouth, while it was addressed sporadically through herbals through the ages, there wasn't a particular reference like there might be for reproductive health or gastrointestinal health. Uh, The working title of our book was called Herbs for the Mouth, a Practical Guide, uh, and Healing Arts Press, our publisher, um, transformed that into dental herbalism, natural therapies for the mouth. Well, it is interesting. I know that in my own studies of medicine, much of the uh, medicine of the mouth and of the teeth gets uh, you, gets referred to dentists. We don't really get a sense of confidence and expertise. And I would say similarly in herbalism, it seems like a lot of that information gets skipped over because of the... Uh, of dentistry essentially uh, having uh, expertise over that area? I would say that's very, very true. Uh, I grew up in an era where I was almost encouraged, and again from my perspective, to abdicate the health of my mouth to dental professionals. Uh, I saw a dentist once a year, more recently, more frequently, because current recommendations have changed. Um, but never, for example, did any healthcare provider ever ask about the health of the, my, my mouth, nor similarly was I ever in a situation where, with a dental professional where they asked about what I ate. Um, uh, yeah, that's very my, interesting. Yeah, well, and so we know that there's this relationship not only between foods we consume and beverages we consume, um, but also our general health, and certainly our emotional and spiritual health affects our general health. So all these things, I think, come together quite neatly in the mouth. To answer your question more specifically about how did I get there, um, I've had an interest for many years, and I noticed that when I worked with people with chronic inflammatory conditions, and I did not address the mouth specifically with um, the application of herbs, either topically or through a gargle or a rinse, my protocols would sometimes um, come to a standstill or slow down unexpectedly, as if 
I hadn't yet begun to truly address the root cause. And there was a dentist some hundred plus years ago, Willoughby D. Miller, um, out of Ohio, who postulated that the health of the body in general and chronic inflammatory conditions were very closely allied with the health of the mouth. So stumbling across Dr. Miller's work, I then began to think about my own work, and I thought, well, what if I were to work in the mouth? Right. Well, um, well, it's uh, Dr. Miller's uh, theory is really borne out in in contemporary science. We we know now, for instance, that chronic gum disease increases uh, our risk of cardiovascular disease. So more and more, the health of the mouth and the health of the whole person seems to be uh, becoming apparent. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other discoveries around relationships between systemic diseases and uh, conditions going on in the mouth? Absolutely. We're now um, coming to realize that a health, the health of the fetus, uh, respiratory, there are respiratory links, there are links when we have organ transplants or replacements, or indeed we look towards joints um, and joint replacements like hips or, or knees. What we find is organisms that we would find in the mouth are also appearing at these other sites throughout the body. Um, So so that was interesting with the knee and hip replacements. Uh, When you say that the bacteria from the mouth is appearing in the joints, uh, and they're finding in science that that there's a better chance of a successful joint replacement if you have good oral hygiene. Exactly. And many people surprisingly are have some difficulty uh, coming to an understanding about the relationship between the health of the mouth and systemic health or health in other parts of the body. And it's interesting that if we were to go out jogging, for example, and we were to fall down and scrape ourselves, um, not only would we want to perhaps clean a wound topically to prevent local inflammation, but we also are working to reduce the likelihood of getting a systemic infection from pathogens or as a result of the fall um, because blood travels through the body. Well, of course, the same is true with each of our teeth. Each tooth is supplied by a regular supply of blood. And another another one of the associations or correlations that seems really interesting is the what's called the biodirectional relationship between periodontal disease and diabetes. That if you take better care of your mouth, it helps your blood sugar control, and if you take better care of your diabetes, it helps your mouth health. Absolutely, absolutely. And diabetes was is perhaps one of the most clear cut examples of this, as you so rightly said, bi-directional relationship. So before we talk about some of the, the different uh, treatments and approaches you have in dental herbalism, let's touch a little bit on the, the history of herbs in, in either dentistry or in oral mouth care. What, I was fascinated by that section. There was, for instance, the use of beeswax as, a, as filling 
before. Wasn't as, that remarkable? As, Thousands of years ago. Yeah. yeah. What are I some mean, of, What are some of the other things other than beeswax fillings that were used in in historical times? Historical times, we see the use of sage, um, and we continue to see that in contemporary uh, commercial oral care products. Uh, we see the use of thyme. The Latin name for thyme is thymus, and of course, I, many of your listeners may well be familiar with that toothpaste called thymol. Um, so the leaves have been used um, as a gargle and a rinse, and they also, thyme has very strong antimicrobial properties. So sage, thyme, the mints, in particular peppermint, um, uh, increasingly uh, some essential oils, lavender, for example, that we use these days, and tea tree. These are also products that have a very, very long history of use in the mouth. Myrrh uh, and uh, propolis, which you've mentioned um, is akin to beeswax, um, but with slightly different properties. Um, what else? Those are cinnamon, of course. Yeah, that's a cinnamon good, is, that's a good list. Yeah, in yeah case, I mean, and it, and you can see that really in terms of contemporary uh, formulations, we really haven't deviated from that very much. Even some of the old means of cleaning the teeth, um, we used to use shells, for example, not too pleasant, but more pleasant are twigs from herbs, um, marshmallow, for example, or birch, or neem, although neem carries several cautions with its use. Whereas, whereas a lot of the herbs you mentioned previously are, are relatively safe herbs. Exactly. And in the choice of the 41 herbs that I finally decided on for inclusion in dental herbalism, that was the primary criterion, that indeed they could be safe. We wrote dental herbalism for really three audiences. The dental professional, who knows n not very much about herbs um, and would benefit from a greater awareness. Um, the herbalist, who, as you said earlier, really doesn't know much about the mouth. And for the layperson, uh, general audience, who really wants to go back to nature or get in touch with their own oral care or address the financial limitations associated with sound oral care because the use of herbs is so much less expensive. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Leslie Alexander, the co-author of Dental Herbalism, Natural Therapies for the Mouth. Well, let's talk about some things that people can prepare at home. Maybe uh, we could start with a, a good preventative herbal mouth rinse, for instance. Well, an herbal mouth rinse can be made from any number of kitchen herbs. Um, we were just talking about sage or thyme. So one rinse that I particularly like might be comprised of two parts of two parts of thyme um, and a very small pinch of cinnamon, 
and three or four organic orange peels. And we can decoct these so we can place, say, about an ounce of combined herb in about 32 ounces of water and bring this to a slow simmer while covered and let it cool. And we can use this as a rinse or a gargle for the mouth. And interestingly, David, one person in the household might think this is great, and another person might well prefer peppermint. So a peppermint uh, mouthwash could be prepared simply by infusing fresh peppermint leaves or indeed dried leaves in a mug of boiled water. Um, again, this can be used as a mouthwash. We can use sea salts as a very, very, very acceptable uh, means of abrading the teeth and gums and cleaning after a meal or between meals. Currently, the suggestion is to brush our teeth two or three times a day for two to three minutes. Um, also, many people like a paste, and we can make a paste through a number of powdered herbs, uh, or we can use something like betonite clay, for example, as a base, moistening it with either herbal teas or essential oils um, to both draw and abrade and clean the mouth. And if somebody wanted to do a mouth rinse, but they had an, an active inflammation in the mouth, they have maybe bleeding gums or maybe a mild infection as well, what, what, what are some of the herbs you'd think of for adding to that? One that I think is a marvelous herb and a very strong antimicrobial would be turmeric. Um, also, with bleeding gums, one of the things we want to do is tighten the gum so we'd look to astringe it. We might add a bit of oak or we might add for discomfort a bit of willow. And these can be combined either by decocting, as I mentioned earlier, or by diluting tinctures uh, into warm water and swilling the mouth there. We can also make poultices with these herbs. So we would use a powdered form of willow and turmeric, for example, or willow, barberry, and turmeric, uh, moistening them with either a tea or tap water and applying them topically to reduce inflammation, control bleeding, tighten up the gums. So in that case, if you had, if you're trying to control a specific spot or perhaps you had tooth pain and you were waiting to go see the dentist, would you be putting the poultice just along the gum line between the cheek and the gum and leaving it there for a while? Or how would that work as a poultice? You would, you would do just that. Another way um, would be, for example, we talk in, in uh, when we address teething to use uh, a tea and saturate a small cloth with the tea, freezing the cloth, and then using the cloth as a means of anesthetizing the gums of an infant because it's because it's frozen, and because it's impregnated with nervines, herbs that help reduce pain or nerve discomfort, um, it 
makes a, a young person a lot more comfortable, no doubt, all the people around them, too. Um, so we can use the same frozen cloth approach if people don't uh, are not comfortable with poultices directly on the skin. We can impregnate a cloth with herbs that have been made from either a decoction or an infusion, and then we can freeze that cloth, and then we can even cut it up into small pieces and use it piece by piece in the areas in the mouth where there is discomfort. What are your thoughts on the the technique in India of pulling oil, where they rinse the mouth uh, with oil, I think sesame oil, and then and then spit it out as a technique to remove uh, p- potential pathogens? I think it's a very very interesting technique, and anything that we do on a regular basis to sustain the health of the mouth is worth looking at. Uh, Dr. Vasant Lad recommends that when we pull oil. We pull with sesame oil, as you said, although other oils have been used from olive oil to uh, cold-pressed extra virgin coconut oil, for example. Um, And then there are various opinions about how long to pull. So in Ayurvedic medicine, it's my understanding that we pull oil to balance doshas. And in the West, we don't work with doshas, but people still do appreciate uh, the technique. And I have had a few clients over some time say that they've noticed improvements in their oral health, pulling oil from anywhere between 5 and 10 minutes daily. We had a call off the air that's asking if you have any tips for people who have teeth that are sensitive to hot and cold temperatures. Ah, hot and cold is something that is um, related to um, the expression of nerves. I wouldn't be surprised if there, if there were other issues also going on in the mouth. I would suggest starting with uh, mouthwashes that are room temperature, and then I've had some experience occasionally increasing the temperatures over a very, very, very slow period. So moving from a liquid that's room temperature to slightly warmer over a period of two to three months and working with a nice blend of nervines, and that does seem to have some effect. But that's a question that would probably be better posed to my co-author, Linda Stroud-Bruce. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Leslie Alexander about dental herbalism, natural therapies for the mouth. Well, given that you've mentioned your your co-author, who's a a dental hygienist, um, did you, in co-authoring the book, come across uh, areas of, of great disagreement that you had to negotiate, given that you're coming from the world of herbalism and she's coming presumably from a, a more conventional dental background? We did indeed. And uh, to be perfectly honest, in the writing of Herbs for the Mouth, a practical guide, our writing almost ceased around two topics. One is the use of fluoride, and the other is the use of mercury amalgams in the mouth. So as a herbalist, I 
don't see the advantage of either using fluoride in public drinking waters and medicating the masses or um, uh, on a regular routine basis. So we had a great number of heated discussions around fluoride, um, and Linda was helpful in reminding me and encouraging me to look more closely at the topic, and I had a very black and white point of view. I don't any longer. Um, I think that, for example, when we when our mouths become very dry, as a result of disease or an intervention such as radiation and chemotherapy, there is an increased risk in caries and cavities and a decline in oral health. So in situations where, for example, someone is undergoing uh, radiation and chemotherapy in an effort to preserve the health of the mouth, and to ward off a subsequent decline in oral health, I have been convinced that the application of fluoride is something that should well be discussed with a client prior to either of those interventions uh, beginning. Well, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that both of you made it to the end and were able to bring the book out together. Oh, thanks. I think we are too. Um, I really do. I learned a, I learned a whole lot working with Linda. Um, it's been a, a very, very sweet and interesting journey. And I continue to learn as I teach and do workshops around the country on the health of the mouth from practical things like how do we make these products? How do we apply them to working with herbalists and dental professionals about what we're doing and, and the great array of herbs, the 41 that we presented are but a fraction of what's in the herbal literature. So I'm looking forward to continuing to work in that area. And, and did you and Linda, were you on the same page around nutrition uh, and, and oral health in terms of strategies? Absolutely. You were. Absolutely. Um, we are on the same page in terms of oral health, and one of the things that I think um, we both advocate is snacking less or condensing snacking into discrete episodes. How many times have we seen a parent or heard a parent actually say to their child, now here's a sweet, a bag of M&Ms or whatever, but make it last. Um, really, for the health of our mouths, it's, it's much, much better to gobble it all down, to be greedy about it, get it over with. Why is, that the, why is that the case rather than eating slowly throughout the day, for instance? Well, what happens is every time we put something in the mouth, sometimes too as a result of our emotional or spiritual well-being or pharmaceuticals we're on, but when we put food and drink in our mouths, the pH of the mouth changes. So saliva is this marvelous substance that keeps the pH of the mouth at about 7. And when we drink a Coke, for example, or eat certain fruits or, or sugary foods, the pH drops. And when it goes 
below the excuse me the level of 5.5 the mouth becomes very acidic and that's not a place where we want to keep the pH of the mouth because of erosion so really, a neutral pH uh, of around 7 is much, much better. So after we ingest, whether it's wine of an evening or a bag of M&Ms, um, swilling the mouth with water at the very least is a great idea. And there's some really fascinating food tips that are not necessarily obvious ones. Like You, you say that strawberries and hard cheeses, for instance, have a, a particularly uh, good effect on, on, the, on mouth climate. Yeah. And so it's not surprising when we look to how herbs are used um, through centuries. It's not surprising then we think about the British serving cheese and biscuits and often a hard cheese. Uh, after a meal. So it helps. They're very alkaline, and so it helps bring the pH of the mouth back up. Hmm. And the French also eat cheese at the end of a meal, too, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, go ahead. And what about, just as a final thought, could you talk about uh, what are the best sugar alternatives, if any? Um, well, there's stevia. And stevia is really saturating the marketplace. But there, even with stevia, there are cautions. Stevia is a plant, Stevorebodiana. And so we um, use the leaf, and the leaf is green and it's crumbly and looks much like many other herbs, but it's indeed three to 400 times sweeter than sugar. And this can be used in cooking as well as liquid preparations. And we give recipes for it and the preparation of it and other herbs throughout the book. There's just a plethora of things things to make and things to do. Um, but what we see in the supermarkets and even at health food stores are commercial extracts of stevia. So those could and should be avoided. Um, because they're not balanced as the leaf. Um, and we can look to um, molasses, for example, as a sweetener, or honey is a superb sweetener with uh, the added benefit of being an excellent antimicrobial. Mm. So there is a great literature, and we touch on, oh, probably 20 or 30 um, different sweetening agents in dental herbalism. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch, Leslie. Do you have a website you could point our listeners to? I do, and it's been a pleasure being here. You can go to, you and your listeners can go to www.dentalherbalism.com, and both myself and Linda can be reached through the website as well. Thanks for being here today, Leslie. Uh, thank you, David. It was a very great pleasure. We are talking today to Leslie Alexander, co-author of Dental Herbalism, Natural Therapies for the Mouth. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host.